Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peace Building platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peace building calendar. It's a week of workshops, videos and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. It's founded on the core belief that each and every person, actor and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2021, held from the 1st to the 5th of November, with both live workshops and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at www.genevapeaceweek.ch. As humanity finds itself facing challenges unparalleled in its short history, it's clear that we need to rethink traditional approaches to peace building and development that respond to increasingly complex, global, and existential threats. Finding solutions requires fundamentally new ways of thinking. For the past two decades, Steve Kilalea, the founder and executive chairman of the Institute for Economics and Peace and the creator of the Global Peace Index, has delved into the crucial and yet misunderstood concept of global peace. We are joined today by Steve, who will lead us in a conversation about positive peace and how, in combination with systems thinking, it provides an exciting new theory of change to conceptualize how societies function and new approaches to solving our most intractable problems. Sharing his extensive and professional expertise is Ambassador Thomas Greminger, who worked as Secretary General of the Organization for the Security Cooperation in Europe from 2017 until 2020, and in May of this year, took over as director of the Geneva Center for Security Policy. And finally, to share with us examples of positive peace in action to, to reinvigorate discussions around practical, measurable, and achievable peacebuilding approaches in today's hyper-connected world, we are joined by Juan Jose Ruiz Quintero, who is a master's in international law student from Colombia and who has recently interned with the United Nations Peacekeeping, Disarmament, Demobilization, and Reintegration Section. And finally, we are also joined by Miranda Barker, a Master's in Development Studies student from the United Kingdom, who is interning with Nonviolent Peace Force and is also doing a research project with the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform. Juan and Miranda are also the co-directors of the Peacebuilding Initiative at the Graduate Institute. Steve, let's begin with a quote from your new book, Peace in the Age of Chaos, The Best Solution for a Sustainable Future. In your book, you write that positive peace can be used as a measure of resilience and adaptability, but it can also be used as a predictor of which nations are most likely to adjust to or to absorb shocks, whether they be financial, ecological, or societal. Perhaps a useful starting point for our discussion today would be to unpack what you mean by positive peace and how it can create the conditions necessary to restructure societies so that they have the ability to adapt and modify in our changing environments. When we look at positive peace, it's the attitude, institution and structures which create and sustain peaceful societies. But let's take a step back and look at how do you get there. So at the Institute for Economics and Peace, we developed the Global Peace Index. And the definition for that is the absence of violence or fear of violence. 
That consists of three different domains, uh, internal safety and security, uh, ongoing conflict, militarization. And so that's great. It really is a great way of being able to understand the state of peace currently, but it tells you nothing about what creates a peaceful society. So to do that, what we've done is we've got about 50,000 different data sets, indexes, attitudinal surveys. So we've taken them, we use mathematical model and statistical analysis to determine those factors which are most closely associated with highly peaceful societies. And that we call positive peace. So that's the attitude, institutions and structures which create and sustain peaceful societies. And so that's really good. So the ones with the highest statistical analysis, the ones which we pick. So now what we do then is use further techniques, uh, two which are statistical again and mathematical in nature, to be able to clump them into like sorts of groups. And that comes up with eight parts, which we call the pillars of positive peace. And that together then comes back as a topology, which is systemic in nature. So there isn't really a causal relationship between any. And you can argue that one pillar is now more important than another. But the profound thing, and this is where it gets really interesting, is we can take that and turn that around into another index called the Positive Peace Index. Now, having the Positive Peace Index now gives you the ability to be able to understand the momentum of the society towards or away from the factors which create peace. And so that now gives you the ability to start to be able to make predictive analysis around where societies might be going. But I think the thing which was profound for me, the most profound thing out of doing this, was realising that the very factors which create peace also create many, many other things which we think are important. So for what be some some examples. Well, let's think of the GDP. Countries which are improving in positive peace have much better performance than countries which are deteriorating in positive peace. So two examples of that. One, countries which are improving in positive peace, on average, for the last 60 years, have had 2% better per annum GDP growth rate than countries which are deteriorating. If we went back a decade ago, and we looked at the major stock market, we took a look at the stock markets in the world, and we put an investment into the stock markets of the countries which were, had the biggest improvements in positive peace, and compared that to the stock markets, the average global stock market, you would have got a 34% better return. So that's just some of the financial things which are associated. But it's also associated with better performance on measures of ecology. It's also associated with better measures on performance of the well-being and happiness, let's say, also much better on measures of inclusion. So in many ways, positive peace describes an optimal environment in which human potential can flourish. Now, the good news, and this is good news, is that if we look back over the last decade, positive peace has actually improved. 75% of the countries have actually improved in positive peace. But it gets a little bit more problematic as we start to break it down because you've got the attitudes, institutions and structures. So if we now look at the structures, they've gone well. They've really improved dramatically and they're one of the things which really pulls the whole positive piece up. So what do structures consist of? So they're things like uh, per capita income, they're 
rising globally, life expectancy, mortality rates, access to the internet. So all the things around structures and they're going well. Now let's look at our institutions and that's in many ways is the functioning of the governments if you like, but it's a bit more than that. They're, well, they just haven't really changed much at all. A little bit, slight improvement in most countries, but in a lot, they're actually gone backwards, even in my home country, Australia, and in a number of European countries as well. But if we come to attitudes, now the attitudes globally have deteriorated over the last decade. And so now we start to look at the attitudes which have deteriorated, what we find is there things like group grievances, we find the equitable distribution of resources, they're down. We find the uh, things like the fractionalised elites, that's where the elites fight amongst themselves. We find belief in democracy is deteriorated and a number of other, other things as well. Perceptions of corruption, for example, they've deteriorated as well. So now that just gives some background on positive peace and where we are today. Ambassador, could you speak us through how you see the way forward in creating more peaceful societies in the 21st century? I would like to uh, um, talk about a topic that uh, I believe is an extremely important contribution to positive peace, and, and that is cooperative uh, security. Cooperative security means that states are working together to solve uh, a common security risk in a constructive, in a collaborative way. And, and unlike collective security, which is defensive, which represents more an alliance against something or someone, cooperative security is a more outward looking concept. It, it comes into play when security uh, questions at hand is not who we should defend ourselves against, but who we need to cooperate with in order to address a particular uh, security uh, issue. Just think of uh, climate change, of environmental degradation, regulating the impact of technology like artificial intelligence on our lives, or coping with large flows of refugees and migrants, pandemics, arms control, uh, transnational organized crime, cyber threats, nuclear safety. These are all issues that transcend borders and on which states need to work together. Uh, in fact, on, on a number of, of these global issues, either there is a cooperative solution or there is no solution at all. Uh, UN Secretary Guterres once said, in an interconnected world, um, it is time to recognize a simple truth. Solidarity is self-interest. Now, what are some of the defining features of, of, of uh, cooperative security? Uh, one is clearly that it is about conceptualizing security together. Uh, that is, uh, states, uh, societies would jointly identify and prevent threats, both national and transnational, rather than counter them through deterrence or through the use of force. A, a, a second feature is uh, that uh, parties at stake need also uh, to enable relations uh, that are guided by common rules and, and principles. 
uh, that they would have ideally themselves developed and agreed to. This is something that I would call principled cooperation. It relies on establishing elements of common threat perceptions. That's uh, what I alluded to before. The demonstration of restraint by all parties, privileging dialogue, preventing a conflict, rules-based interaction, good neighborly relations, and a gradual move towards, uh, at least at a minimum, peaceful coexistence. And perhaps uh, a third feature that I would like to mention that is, uh, I think, important for uh, a cooperative way of approaching security challenges is sovereign equality. All countries must be involved and negotiations and decisions should be taken together, ideally on the basis of consensus. Cooperative security also requires a degree of empathy, empathy uh, to understand that the other side may have a different history, a different culture, as well as different perceptions and interests, but wants to be treated with dignity and respect. And this would require then trust-building steps, predictability, reciprocity, and, and pragmatism, again, based on some uh, jointly defined common principles. We have systems thinking approaches, and we have more linear thinking approaches. Ambassador Greminger, based on your experience, when have you seen the application of linear thinking or systems thinking result in different outcomes? Or how could institutions adopt systems thinking in order to respond to global challenges like the pandemic or climate change? Indeed, I was going to uh, point to uh, dealing with the repercussions of COVID-19. When I was at the helm of the OEC, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, um, initially, clearly, we perceived COVID uh, in a very linear way. It was a public health threat. And if you are in charge uh, of an organization like the OEC, this mainly, mainly boils, boils down to a, a managing the dilemma between business continuity and duty of care for your staff. Um, but then, of course, we quickly uh, discovered that uh, there are uh, totally different aspects, uh, repercussions that need to be factored in um, and, 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 you know, realizing that the virus does not care about borders, does not care about propaganda, uh, and basically also realizing that there is barely a single aspect of security that would not have been affected by the pandemic uh, from limiting contacts between countries and, and more specifically also leaders. Uh, and, and I mean, you saw uh, immediate reactions by countries was shutting down uh, basically the borders, uh, but then also uh, spreading disinformation, uh, diverting attention from other pressing concerns. Uh, and I think uh, eventually uh, we realized that we need to look at COVID-19 in a much more systemic way. Uh, and, and I think the spread of the virus has also uh, 
proven the relevance again of cooperation within communities between states and as an international community and it has clearly also shown that these um, um, uh, national uh, solutions uh, are insufficient either to uh, stop the spread of the virus uh, or to develop a remedy and, and uh, so I, I think for me this was quite striking uh, and and it was to tell you the truth not easy to convince uh, participating states, the member states of my organization, you know, to look at uh, the pandemic in a systemic way. There was clearly this argument, uh, at least initially prevailing, to say, well, uh, let's not carry the way by, by COVID-19. Um, and uh, we are a secu security organization, so let's... Uh, the World Health Organization deal with, with COVID full stop. But, but obviously, uh, this was not the appropriate uh, answer. What we also saw is that, you know, COVID was um, a tremendous accelerator of existing trends. And, and this is uh, as much the case for the polarization uh, between uh, states uh, and, and within societies. And I think we see uh, this uh, until today as it is for digitalization. And, uh, and, and in a way, I think it has brought us to a crossroads where you know, we have to choose between uh, unilateral uh, approaches to deal with it and, or then multilateral cooperation. And, uh, and I think in that sense, this was, uh, for me, the most telling um, recent case of uh, you know, underlining the relevance of um, a systemic approach to a global challenge. Critical to the positive peace framework is that it is systemic. Steve, you've said before that this distinctly contrasts with the notion of linear causality, which dominates decision-making today. Identify a problem, decide upon its cause, and tackle the root. Can you guide us through how systems thinking opens new ways of understanding nations and how they evolve? We're currently producing an ecological threat register, and so it's focusing on the number of the ecological threats around the world. In many parts of the world, it's degrading and getting much worse. It's particularly true for, let's say, sub-Saharan Africa. It's also true for a belt running from the uh, Syria through to Pakistan through uh, North Africa. So now if we start to look at these problems, they, they involve, the, let's say Africa, involve conflict, involve really large increases in population. Africa, the population is going to increase in the next 30 years by 91%. Uh, and some of the uh, Sahel, for example, we've got countries there like Niger or about 161%. These countries have already got massive resource degradation, uh, 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 the uh, high levels of malnutrition, high levels of the uh, uh, undernourishment, food insecurity. Uh, uh, most of, a lot of these places, 80% of available water is already being used. So if we're going to solve these things and look at the structure of the international agencies, we find that do, and health issues like COVID are right, rampant right through this as well. 
So we look at the structure of the international agencies, they're built along a, a, a different line. So you've got one which is interested in health, another one which is interested in, let's say, you know, refugees, but others which will work on education. So really the solution, I think, anyway, is that we need agencies built up which look at a specific area, and it, it may overlap countries because you're looking at different issues, and you need to bring together all these different functions like education, health, refugees, the military for the conflict, agricultural production, water conservation, business development, and bring them together as one integrated group. And that then starts to match the systemic nature of the problems. And from that, you'll get a whole lot, much faster decision-making processes because you're not now bashing heads between different groups. You'll also get much higher levels of efficiency. You'll be able to much better engage with the local, local communities. So that would be one example of how you could take systems thinking in the current issues today and apply them. So I might give another example too. This one comes from the community level and it's, it, this happened in Africa. So we've got a partnership with Rotary and Rotary you're know, implementing a you know, positive peace programming all around the world. And we did some training in Uganda and there was one particular gentleman there. So he went along to two of our these training workshops we did, which run for about three days. And he was working on a literacy program in a very, very poor rural part of Uganda. And so they'd been at it for a couple of years with no real success, okay? And so then he thought, well, I'll take positive piece and apply it to the project. So what he did, he looked at the literacy project in his four school and then looked through the eight lenses of positive piece and worked out the interventions to do. Some of them were really good, like they're going on the local radio station and talking about the things they were doing in the school. Things like corruption, they take each of the uh, uh, each of the uh, things donated to the school, stamp, have a register, and check the register every three months. But the program had phenomenal, phenomenal changes within the community. The rates of attendance went up 246%, where 30% of the students were getting in the uh, uh, two top grades within the district, that jumped to 60%. So I've told you a couple of the things which they did, and they did things through each of the lenses. But there were two which had a real impact. And the first was around acceptance of the rights of others. And so they noticed a whole lot of the girls weren't going to school for four days a month, and that was when they were menstruating. So they introduced sanitary pads, separate toilets for them. And that upped their rates, and then sort of also made them more keen on their academic performance. But the thing which really made the difference, and you wouldn't get at it, particularly from a literacy program, but... What was happening is this was in a really poor area in a rural environment. Much the kids would go out and raid all the uh, food in the, in the gardens of the neighbours around there because they were hungry, particularly the fruit trees. And this was causing massive problems with the neighbours. So they looked at good relationships with neighbours, which is one of the pillars. And then from that, they could see the problem and saw it as part of the literacy problem. And so... What they did was they planted a whole lot of trees in the yard 
then sort of the uh, then also supplied porridge at lunchtime. So in the environment in Africa, it's a couple of cents a student to give them the porridge at lunchtime. But what that meant is now that they actually had the nutrients in their brains so they wouldn't lose concentration in the afternoon. And that was the biggest, of course, the biggest improvement. Now, as they get out on the radio station and talk about what they're doing, now we've got a lot of other parents now, rather than getting the kids and mainly boys, forcing them to go out and scrummage for food, they now sent them to school. So it was one less meal they had to provide in a really, really poor area. So look, that's another example of the community level of positive peace. And it's just because the eight pillars have been designed and arrived at systemically, they pretty much cover most things. And so looking at the interventions through each of those different lenses, you get a much better systemic approach for solving a problem. I'm curious to hear from Miranda and Juan, who represent our new generation of leadership, on how they see positive peace in action through their research and professional work. And I would like to uh, talk specifically about an event that we had on, on Colombia and on the peace process that Colombia is going at the moment. Um, I think uh, an excellent example of positive peace and, and even systemic peace approaches are, are transitional justice themselves because they they see peace and they see uh, the they, they seek to overcome conflict taking different approaches and traditional uh, use of military forces or normally is when the the military efforts are have have finished and a ceasefire is, is agreed and and then the case that uh, that we touched in that conversation is Colombia and how this comprehensive system of truth um, and ju justice, reparation and non-repetition, uses a very complete and, and a very, well, as the system is called, comprehensive approach to close the, the wounds in the society and to achieve a sustained peace through different, different um, let's say, mechanisms, for example. Uh, we have a truth-seeking commission that, focuses more in the social part and more in the victim side on trying to close the close those wounds that the that the conflict has created in the persons but also is trying to establish a different narrative a, a definite narrative of what actually happened in the conflict to prevent it from happening another in again and, and to address like those roots to social roots of the conflict. And as well, alternative sanctions uh, are being are being uh, studied, are being going to be used in the in the tribunal that has been set up for this case. Uh, and the the idea of these alternative sanctions is not to re not to reach to the normative punitive approaches that are used by by justice uh, traditionally, but uh, the idea is to uh, re resource to the the persons that caused all the damage and that created the 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 conflict itself and use use their their potential the, the human capacity to to fix what fix the damage they've done by by creating um special programs for f helping the victims reconstruction infrastructure creating um for forms of, of work or uh, yeah of an entrepreneur and alternative um forms of, of working and alternative projects for creating economic remuneration for both victims and combatants and as well, in, in Colombia, we studied a bit how the, how the, the government and the, the whole P 
peace process created this development program with territorial focus, which I believe is, is something very important since how, as how we have mentioned here, the economic side is, is very important when addressing peace and it has something that has to be addressed by every comprehensive uh, process that seeks to establish peace in a society. And in this sense, in Colombia, they're using these, these uh, programs with territorial focus to, to foster uh, the, the economic growth of these regions, but also the employment of the uh, vulnerable members of the, society, of the society that have been marginalized and that have suffered the most uh, from, the, from the conflict. And in this case, is, is there has been some resistance, some political resistance from within. But I believe that this approach is, is, is the correct approach and is the way to go to comprehensively address peace in this sense. And this is sort of, of, the, of the activities that we do. We try to highlight what is, what is working in terms of peace and these alternative ways of, of peace building or creating peace. So as Juan said, this is also why we have such a diverse different, um, this is why we have such a diverse array of events. Um, so the one Juan was just alluding to um, was actually a documentary followed by a panel discussion of an activist and an academic. So we're also trying to introduce as many different um, peace uh, dynamics um, through these different events. And we're also trying to, through this, we believe that it is a more sustainable approach as well. For example, we had um, an event with Civilian Peace Service Canada who talked about the ethics of peace mediating and how important it is to be more introspective and to um, understand your own biases as a mediator and the importance and the responsibility that actors have in the peace sector. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Greminger, did you want to share any concluding thoughts on the need for better leadership to accelerate peace? Well, absolutely. I think uh, often I suppose that the short-term incentives of our political economy you know, make it uh, quite attractive uh, for political leaders to, uh, and, and this is particularly true in the age of, of populism, um, to uh, follow belligerent, uh, relatively aggressive, hostile rhetorics uh, instead of uh, trying to uh, reach out, uh, trying to uh, seek compromise. Uh, trying to understand uh, uh, the other. And uh, so I think this um, quest for, for real, genuine dialogue is absolutely fundamental. And for this, I think you see it uh, in uh, many peace processes at the outset, uh, there needs to be enlightened leadership uh, normally at the same time uh, on, on both sides to kind of uh, embark on a peace process to decide that, uh, yeah, now it's better to start talking to each other. And I think this is also true uh, when you uh, look at uh, the current state of the world with this high degree of polarization uh, be, between China and the West, between Russia and the West. And I think uh, here, what we would need is uh, enlightened leaders that think a bit uh, ahead of time and are ready to engage in, in, in genuine uh, dialogue. I think that is uh, absolutely essential. Thank you. I'd like to end with a final quote from your book, Steve. You write that the problem today is not that we are faced with disruptive change, 
but that we are faced with waves of disruptive change on so many fronts and that our ability to deal with it must be enhanced. And that will close today's podcast. So thank you, Steve, Ambassador Greminger, Miranda, and Juan for sharing your expertise and insights to help us enhance our ability to move beyond securitization to create a more just, resilient, and peaceful world. As Steve puts it, in an age of chaos. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.